Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Sweet tarts dare to combine sweet and tart. But we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hi there, Tom Kerridge here on the BBC Good Food podcast. This week, I'm speaking to my great friend and chef Rob Tequin of the Bearing Pub about his favourite dish, ribeye steak, chips and aioli. Rob first began cooking in his home county of Yorkshire before taking himself across Europe, cooking in Spain, Italy and France. Rob, tell us a little bit more about those years. Uh, well, I, I think... Um... The uh, the start of it all for me was um, after I finished my GCSEs, straight away took a took a job washing up. Yes, in, see, uh, see that's where I started. It's all the best <laughs> chefs start washing up, mate. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, it was busy hotel kitchen back in in North Yorkshire, back at home, and just immediately like fell in love with the the atmosphere, the the culture, the the knives, the fire. Uh, the different characters that you meet along the way. There's an incredible energy in there about kitchens and spaces, and it's so alien. So particularly if you come from doing your GCSEs and you're in that kind of like institutionalized school zone where everybody, all your friends are the same age, everything that you're doing is the same, you know, and you've got that kind of hierarchy of just being told what to do by a teacher, and then you go into an, a working environment that's so alien to just anybody's normal work environment. So coming from school straight into that space, there's such an incredible kind of like electric buzz about a kitchen, isn't there? Yeah, for sure. Like I, I think for me over everything else, it felt really like freeing. You know, it's, it's an environment where as much as there's discipline to it, people can be completely themselves. Um, and 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 often are <laughs> maybe a little bit too much in yeah. some in some yeah. cases. But it's one of the most embracing environments as well, isn't it? So if you've got a work ethic as a youngster coming out 
of school and going into that kitchen. You know, if you're working hard, that's recognized straight away by the rest of the team. And it's the most, I suppose, eclectic bunch of people can end up in hospitality and catering. It doesn't matter your economic background, your education, your your sexuality, your religion, your race, your, you know, your cultural history. None of it matters at all because you come in there. If you've got the work ethic and you want to you get on, everybody embraces it, don't they? Hundred percent, hundred percent. When um, we opened the pub a few months back, we we had a chap um, come and knock on the door looking for work. He he'd been out of work for for about three years with the pandemic and stuff like that. Lives on a on a um, in a block just down the road, and just said, you know, no one no one's given me a chance. Uh, I'll do anything. So you know, he, he comes in, he puts the deliveries away in the morning, and now we're slowly training them up to do like basic prep jobs and stuff like that. And you know, he's such an integral part of the team, and just you know, to be able to to give people that opportunity and 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 stuff like that, I, I don't think you can do that in a lot of industries. And you know, it's it's definitely a good thing. No, because there's work for everybody, isn't there? Depend. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if you've just got that ethic, and you someone's knocking on your back door and going, "I'd like a job. I'll do anything." Yeah. Like, Hospitality goes great. Yeah, we've yeah. got loads of jobs that need doing. Like yeah. we've got everything that needs doing. Come and help us. Give us a hand. So then, what is it about then spending that time in that kitchen and then made you decide that you want to go around Europe looking for jobs and working? Uh, I think one of the other reasons um, I thought chefing would be a good career choice was was being able to apply it anywhere. So I did a did a ski season after after school, and then came back to the UK, trained as a chef. Took a job back up north for a year and a half, two years, which was a bit of a, a baptism of fire. Little place in Harrogate called Vanzella, and uh, Tom was uh, another Tom was quite quite old school to say the least. He'd worked in some pretty elite kitchens in London. Worked for like Tom Aitkins at Pierre de Terre and Pierre Kaufman at La Tonclair and stuff like that. So great cooks, yeah. But kitchen environments that were very disciplined and very strong. Yeah, very much so. So yeah, it was a, a baptism of fire for sure. Uh, and tough, definitely tough. Uh, learned a lot in a very short amount of time. It was a really small kitchen. There was only me, Tom, and, and a chef in between us who definitely protected me from a few... Um, a few tellings off, should we say, um, from time to time. But yeah, I, I sort of did that for a couple of years and then um, decided to, to take myself back to Europe and do a bit more traveling with it. So it was a mixture. Again, I suppose it, it, that's a real embracement of this industry, of the fact that, you you know, if you can cook, you've got a set of knives, you can stick them in a roll and off you go. Yeah. You can get around Europe looking, because it doesn't matter what whether you speak Spanish or French or Italian, if you go into the kitchen and say, hello, I need a job, what have you got for me? They're also looking for people with enthusiasm. Yeah, definitely. And really welcoming everywhere I went. I was in the French Alps and then in Venice and uh, worked privately in Ibiza for a bit. And yeah, just to see all the different cultures and, and work with so many different people and, you know, takes it back to, like you say, that sort of eclectic nature of the industry. And yeah, I was really lucky to work with some amazing people. So those great European food styles that you've learned there from Spanish and French and Italian cookery, has that then been, uh, uh, I, I suppose, a, a foundation for the way that you cook now, that understanding of those ingredients and the way that you put things together on the plate? Very much so. I think one of the big reasons we wanted to open a, a pub rather than a restaurant was because, again, that sort of eclectic nature of pubs, like you don't really have to pigeonhole yourself into um 
one cuisine, you know, because you're a pub, you can sort of do what you want. Um, yeah. So we, we take influences from everywhere, um, especially sort of Spanish, Mediterranean, North African. And yeah, I think ultimately, you know, any chef throughout their career, they're just a, a product of their environment. Um, and that's what they become. And for me, I wanted to gain as, you know, many different experiences in different places and different kinds of restaurants to then, you know, sort of cherry pick what you like, what you don't like. And well, then... I suppose at this point we should probably come clean a little bit because you worked with <laughs> us, didn't you, at Carriages Bar and Grill. You were part of the opening team and the, the pre-opening team opened it and was there for about three and a half years before you found your own space. And you were, you know, you ran it alongside Nick Beardshaw, who's the head chef there. And um, before that, though, I mean, I suppose what we do and what you help build has always been that foundation in, in just strong, fundamental British cookery, finding great ingredients. Um, it's not as eclectic as the food perhaps that you do now, but your background prior to that was also in one of the most well-known and famous pubs in the country, the Bull and Last. Yeah, absolutely. That was my first first job in London and really, yeah, gave me that love of of, of the pub atmosphere. It's a beautiful place on, on the edge of Hampstead Heath and um, Joe and Ollie, who, who run the Bull, have, have been there for sort of getting on for 15 years now and it's it's one of those that's become a real british institution um but just the environment and seeing people you know coming in from all all walks of life whether it be you know for a scotch egg and a pint or a a three-course meal um the accessibility of it as opposed to you know maybe a more more formal setting um you know really felt like something we'd want to kind of emulate one day trying to drive those kind of eclectic mix of flavours and putting it together. So, you know, moving from the Bull and Lars, you've also worked at Morrow, where, it, yeah. it, I mean, what what a wonderful sense of flavourings that come together from that great restaurant. Yeah, a, sort of Moorish cuisine, um, Spanish, North African, uh, Mediterranean, but the I think working there, a lot of um, sort of British chefs, might use uh, spices and stuff in in the way they know how, but the understanding of it there, you know, the subtlety behind it, and sort of layering flavors with with more complex ingredients like that is is you know was a massive learning curve for me. Yeah, that's one of those things: spicing and an understanding of where spicing comes from, because. It- you know, as chefs, we can be quite clunky if you don't understand it, just like put loads of it in, but <laughs> yeah. overpower it. But to get a complete understanding of layering things up makes a big, big difference to the cooking. And then I suppose you're also working for Ollie Debout. Your, your, I mean, your CV is incredible. It's exceptional the, the, and really uh, wonderfully diverse. And it feels like it's a perfect mix of all of those sort of spaces that you've worked at to be able to open your own business uh, and build it on that kind of foundation of great food, but it is it, incredibly rich in its kind of understanding and its, I suppose, food vocabulary that you have for your CV. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, I'd like to say it was um, a very intentional plan, but uh, I'd be lying. Yeah. Um, you know, I've always kind of just, just um, each time I've I've moved on, look for the the best opportunity. Um, but I do think, as as a chef throughout your career, you you take something completely different from each job you do. You know, when when I worked for you, it was much more sort of polishing off maybe like management skills and and learning more about the business side of it and stuff like that. 
Um, yeah, because there's a big difference between being a great cook and then understanding the business. And I'm sure you're on a ra- <laughs> rapidly sharp learning curve right now as you've opened your first space. Yeah, massively. Like we've um, we've surrounded yeah. ourselves with with good people. And uh, my old man was an accountant back in the day, so he's he's keeping us on our toes when I it comes to the numbers. Well, so, so I mean, you mentioned your old man there. What sort of food was it like when you were growing up in Yorkshire? What did you sort of eat? How did you did you sit together as a family? And was that quite important? Massively, massively. I've got a relatively big family, a couple of brothers, a sister and stuff like that. Um, Dad was away working a fair bit, but um, we always came together at weekends. Uh, Sunday roast was a big one, as it is um, for a lot of people. Massively, yeah, 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 yeah. My granddad used to, um, when we'd sit down for a Sunday roast, there was always a bit of a fight over the Yorkshire puddings and he'd put four on his plate before anyone else had touched anything and eat them. Yorkshire Four Yorkshire puddings. I love that. Yeah, just just eat them completely dry, bang them in um, before anyone else got chance chance to get near them. And who would do the cooking there? Would that be your mum? Yeah, mum was a, well, is a great cook. Everything from scratch, you know. And yeah, look, looked after us really well. Dad, dad did the barbecues in the summer. Classic sort of black chicken, raw in the middle. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A proper Yorkshire barbecue, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was it raining? Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of um, sense of feeling and family, do you feel that that background culture kind of uh, specifically nurtured and um, and brought out that love of cooking? Yeah, I think so. Me and my brothers used to watch a lot of like food TV when we were um, growing up. I remember watching... Are they in the industry as well? No, 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 no. Just uh, you? Just me. Uh, they all, you know, did sensible things like went to university and, uh, you know. Yeah, but they haven't got a cool pub in North London, have they, mate? <laughs> no, certainly not. <laughs> they're, they're not working 100 hours a week trying to keep their business alive, are they? God, who, who lucked out here? <laughs> So look, we're talking about, I mean, the pubs and the pub cookery and the way that you cook at, at the bearing and the food that you have and you build it together. But what would you say, I mean, your favourite dish, we've mentioned it here, is, you know, it's a ribeye steak and chips. Now, is that something on the menu? And describe how you would put it together. What's what's the key ingredients to this? Because it's it sounds very, very simple. Mm. And people will cook this at home and they'll buy a ribeye steak from a supermarket and they'll get some oven chips and... Buy a tub of aioli. What makes it different? What is it that What is it that you do that w- sell me this dish? Well, I think I, I would go as far as to say it's probably the most pubby uh, dish we've got on the menu, and something we really wanted to do. The whole sort of, I guess, food philosophy um, at the pub is about sourcing the best quality ingredients we can, and you know, treating them with respect and and cooking them simply but well, um, and an amazing steak for me is kind of the epitome of that. Um, what so- makes an amazing steak? Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I mean, it's, it's got to start with, with the quality of the beef. You know, I'm sure we all have our, our different favorite cuts. For me, it's a ribeye. I don't know what your, your personal... Yeah, I mean, I, 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 to be honest, a ribeye I'm very, very fond of, but I quite like a rump steak. I yeah. Like, I like... Someone once described a great rump steak to me. It's like, it's so much flavor in it. But the, the thing you've got to use your teeth, yeah. like like it's not it's not a melt in the mouth. It's not a fillet steak. Now a fillet steak, yeah. I love it also as well. Textually, it's great, but the flavor's not there. Like yeah. it, I mean, it's you can still have good flavor from an aging process and whatever else in there. Mm. But actually, you're going to get loads more flavor from a rump steak, a sirloin steak, or a ribeye steak. Yeah, I think for me, the the ribeye just has that perfect amount of marbling through the meat that gives not only the flavor but the texture as well um we use um ex-dairy cow from uh, normandy in the north of france and normandy's famous for like butters and creams and uh, all these amazing dairy products as as i'm sure you well know um and it's down to like the the sort of lush green pastures that you know the rolling hills and fields in normandy and all these beautiful cows um free range sort of roaming around eating eating grass dairy cow it's kind of become more and more trendy nowadays but you know take it back 20 30 years and essentially it would have been a waste product um whereas now we'll we'll use it for our steaks so the cows are, are normally ready to to be eaten uh, once they've stopped stopped producing milk at sort of five to eight years old as opposed to a, a 24 month old um Beef cattle. Beef it's cattle, really, yeah. it's just straight for straight for meat eating. This this yeah. this has got much more flavour because it's already older. Well, exactly. You know that. You know the more more of uh, that lovely green grass they eat, the more flavour that that comes through the meat, and you know their fat develops and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's it's just just got bags and bags of flavour and the most beautiful marbling. Like sometimes when we cut through it, it looks like it's wagyu. It's it's just unbelievable. And we we cook it uh, in the pub on a little Conroe charcoal barbecue. That's kind of like a Japanese style grill, yeah. isn't it? It's like an indoor. It's a barbecue for indoors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You need a good good extraction fan. I must add at that yeah. point. Um, don't don't try this at home. But yeah, so we we cook it over charcoal, and then um, our charcoal supplier gives us these old sort of Chenin Blanc vines. 
that we soak and then um, we rest the the beef in the smoke at the back of the barbecue. So it's kind of like, you know, just taking on all that added sort of smoky So flavor. already you can tell that there's a, there's a, so much love and uh, um, uh, foundation, the thought process that's gone into this dish. You know, you've already, we've, you know, you found a piece of beef that's, you know, before it was slaughtered, it's five to eight years old. What about the aging process on that piece of beef? Are you, are you taking it, it's got to be aged? Uh, it, they hang it on the carcass, but it's uh, it's not overly aged um, after that. To be honest, it's not aged. That processing flavour has been done in in actual the, the cow being reared for another three or four years over the normal uh, age that they normally get cold. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think again, it's a very personal thing. Steak. Some people like those really sort of like aged, almost blue cheesy kind of flavours, um, which you might do with a with a beef ca- cattle. Um, but for us, yeah, the, the flavor's there, um, and, you know, it just doesn't need to be sort of aged as a, as a cut. Um, so it is hung on the carcass, um, for sort of 24 to 36 days, but, but that's the, that's it. And then the roasting or the cooking process done on that charcoal and resting in the vines, the soaked vines, by the sounds of it, you've got this beautiful kind of like smoky flavor that comes mm. from cooking it on a barbecue then the resting process with getting more smoke that comes from those fires so you're trying to drive flavor into this steak as well as possible and listen how do you cook it what's the best way of having a cooked steak because some people will go i want it well done some yeah. people want it rare or blue like as a chef how are you having it i mean it's definitely medium rare for me um one of the ones we see a lot of because we do um a sharing steak uh, so it's a big 600 gram steak we we quite often and get customers who want it half and half, which is always always fun. Someone wants it medium rare, the other person wants it well done. So, you know, that's an added challenge to throw into the mix. I love that. And obviously <laughs> being a restaurateur, you say, yes, of course, no yeah. problem. Of course we can do that. <laughs> yeah. Of course we can magically cook a steak two different ways at yeah. once. Yeah. And, and being an incredible chef that's obviously had an exceptional <laughs> training, you can do that. <laughs> so then talk me through, once the steak is cooked, the resting period, and how long does that get rested for? Uh, you know, as long as it's been cooked, absolutely essential. I think that's one of the things that um, maybe as a as a home cook isn't as widely appreciated as it is. Um, Everyone worries it's going to go cold. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we just pop it back on the barbecue to get a bit of heat back in it or, you know, you could flash it in a really hot oven and stuff. So there's like nothing that, wrong with cooking a piece of meat, resting it, and if it has just gone beyond, you know, room temperature, to get it hot again, put it back into the oven on a hot oven or back onto the barbecue it, it, for a couple of minutes. You're not going to overcook it there. All you're doing is just getting heat back in. Exactly, it. yeah. Definitely. And that resting process has already been done. So, yeah. you know, it's still then relaxed and beautiful to eat. So there's nothing wrong with giving it a quick flash as we talk about it in a, in a professional kitchen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you're going to end up with a much better product doing it that way than than eating it while it's still, you know, really hot but completely under-rested. Yeah, okay. And then talk me through the chips. Now, so that's the steak, cooked, rested, sounds delicious. How, how are we doing the chips here? They're, they're not out of a bag and onto a train in the oven, are they, from the freezer? No, no, no. Although nothing wrong with that um, <laughs> in the domestic environment, for sure. Yeah. Chips are, again, something of great debate. Um, we we triple cook them, but just we, we steam them. Um, again, another source of great debate, but we steam them um, for sort of 10, 15 minutes, let them dry off and then fry them at a nice low temperature for a long time, um, 130 degrees. 
10, 12 minutes, let them drain off, and then um, when you're ready to serve. So the purpose of steaming them first and you're cooking them all the way through? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Essential to cook them all the way through. I think that's one of the things, If you know, if you're parboiling them at home, that old saying, parboil, you know, actually you're just cooking them. Yeah. Um, but it's really essential to cook them all the way through, otherwise you're not going to get that sort of light, fluffy centre in the final product. So cooked all the way through, let them dry off. Uh, you can even do that the day before and let them dry off in the fridge. Um, and then, yeah, a nice low temperature fry for a long time. And what's the purpose of that? Uh, so, you know, it's it's really essential at that point. Um, it starts sort of cooking the exterior and getting rid of some of the moisture in in what's going to be the the final product. So... By doing it sort of low and slow, it gives gives you that time. What you'll notice when you're frying it is all this steam coming off from from the oil, which is all the moisture escaping, and that's what starts to give you that crisp outer shell. That you know you then finish off at a nice high temperature. Well, this is it. This is the way of doing the ultimate and triple cooked chips, isn't it? And most people go, "Well, why do you triple cook them?" And it is to release that moisture because if you've made a crispy chip, and I'm sure we've all done it at home when you've made chips at home and and done it before, that they're crispy to start with, but by the time you go to eat them, they've gone soft again. Yeah, and you go, "It's actually because they're getting steamed from the inside mm. out because we haven't got enough moisture out of the potato, so it's got a crispy outer shell, but in the middle it's still there's water bubbling away yeah. and that's making it go soft from the inside out so you're trying to eradicate as much moisture as possible to make them beautiful and crispy exactly yeah but you know still leaving a little bit of that sort of fluffy potato in the middle so then it gets a last fry at 190 degrees would you yeah 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 i think um you know just get them nice hot and crispy <coughs> um yeah, two, three minutes back in the in the um, really hot oil and uh, you'll end up with, you know, the perfect chip. Triple cooked chips. And then you're not serving this, funny enough, with um, Bernays. You're serving it with aioli. That's yeah. controversial. Yeah. I mean, chips and, and aioli for me is, is, um, is the one. Uh, at the pub, we serve the steak with a chimichurri. Yeah. Um, as opposed to a Bernays. I just think, especially with ribeye and you know, having barbecued it and stuff like that, and you've got all that lovely sort of melty fat content. Takes on that more of a Southern American style with the barbecue, so that yeah. Argentinian flavouring that comes from chimichurri. Yeah, exactly. Just the sort of freshness and acidity to, to you know, counter the richness of the meat. Um, you know, it's just personally how, how I like to eat it. You know, loads of fresh herbs in there, some really good quality aged um cab sab vinegar, a few little very subtle spices, a tiny bit of cumin, that sort of thing. Um, but with grilled sort of quite fatty meat, I just think it gives that lovely contrast and, and keeps it fresh without it, you know, feeling too overindulgent, shall we say. Yeah, lovely. So, that, But then it's the aioli, mm. rich mayonnaise, yeah. garlicky, yeah. Yeah. thick, Good for dipping your chips in? Absolutely. Abs- essential, I'd say. And so this is a dish you've chosen, and it, does it evoke memories for you? Is it wh- Where did you first have it? What is the thing that makes you go, actually, because we were, steak and chips, is it like you can have it anywhere, can't you? You can <laughs> have it anywhere on the high street, you can have it. But what is it about it makes it so special to you? Where, where, where was the first memory of this? 
Uh, I mean, the first memory probably wasn't a good one. It was maybe uh, my old man's barbecue again back in Yorkshire. Um, so sort of grey, one of those grey steaks that's grey on the outside, grey in the middle. Right. Um, <laughs> but one particular um, thing that takes me back, a few years ago, me and, uh, me and the missus went out to San Sebastian and, um, you know, absolute mecca for, for foodies um, and you know, really sort of the epitome of ingredient-led cooking, just the best produce um, that you can find cooked so, so simply. And there's a place out there called Bar Nesta, um, which is infamous. It only does four things, padron peppers, uh, it makes a tortilla twice a day, and then a tomato salad and and steak, Galician beef, and, and that's it. And you go in and, um, you know, there's huge queues outside, no seats, no tables. You just stood up in the middle of the room or, if you're lucky, lent at the bar. And um, they give you this amazing plate of tomatoes, literally just chopped, olive oil, sea salt, that's it, nothing else. And you pick your steak, eat these tomatoes while you're waiting for, for the steak, and then it comes out, it's absolutely, you know, a kilo piece of beef, just really charred on the outside, perfectly cooked in the middle, covered in like a mountain of salt you actually have to brush some of it off um but it's just unbelievable that really like yellow fat on the outside of it yeah. that you get from um the sort of galician beef and uh yeah it was kind of a light bulb moment i think for me like just to see it so simply cooked like you know no technique well you know other than the cooking of it but very little you know no fluff yeah, I mean, you say no technique, but those are the simple things. Those are the things that are, people find it so hard to get their head around of why something may cost so much or what makes it so yeah. special. And essentially, this is a beautiful piece of beef that's been really well sourced, that is fantastic, that's been looked after, that may be five, six, seven years old, mm. that has then been cooked in a process that isn't actually in a pan with butter or, you know, it's just... but. Well rested, well cooked. It is essentially an understanding of cookery skills, great ingredients, treated with love, and done well. Now, what about it, it, it making it a bigger piece? How would you do that for a Sunday lunch? Do you do what do you do on a Sunday lunch? I bet I bet you used to enjoy Sundays off. What happens now on a Sunday, Rob? Well, invariably, uh, my <coughs> sous chef Jay seems to be off most weekends, so I find myself. Uh, <laughs> find myself cooking for 100 people at the pub which is is still very enjoyable of course how many yorkshire puddings are you doing do you know what this sunday tom i made 48 yorkshire puddings we sold 47 so it Whoa, was oh uh, that's running it tight yeah yeah i was getting a little bit nervous at, at 345 when we had a couple of tables to order for sure but I love that. So the pub's still doing very, very well in terms of Sunday lunches. They're great. And roast beef is one of the big sellers? Massively, yeah. So we do our, our Normandy sort of beef rib for two, but we also do a sirloin as a more traditional roast um, on a Sunday as well. Um, and they're yeah, both really popular. Yeah, do you know what? The, the great thing about British pubs and British pub cookery, and when there's incredible chefs like yourself with that, such a wonderful background of, you know, you know, you're someone who's in their thirties now, who's been cooking for fifteen plus years, you know, and with an understanding of, of food and have taken on many kind of different uh, uh, kind of food styles, and, and and is now honing it into something that's very much your own style and taking all of those influences. 
but then putting it into a pub is just the sort of thing that's driving that great British food scene forward. So you're a huge credit to the industry. And, you know, thanks so much for coming on and telling us about steak and chips. But I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you. So it's the first thing that comes into your head. Yeah. What's your most well-looked at, well-thumbed cookery book? Uh, Morrow by Sam and Sam Clark. Amazing, amazing. What music, then, do you have, what, firstly, do you have music in your kitchen? And if you do, what are you listening to? Yeah, we do have music. We actually controversially have music during service as well, just to, you know, keep the vibe going. What type of music? Normally something a little bit, you know, with a little bit of beat to it. Uh, Groove Armada is a real popular one at the moment. I don't know if you, you're familiar, but yeah, Andy Andy Cato, who was one half of Groove Armada, um, sold his record rights um, a few years ago and set up a, a regenerative farm in in uh, France and has now brought that back to the UK uh, and owns a company called Wild Farm uh, who supply our flour that we make our bread with on a daily basis. So it's got that really nice link. So Groove Armada is definitely our go-to at the I bearing. I love that. It's great. Keep it, keep it all connected. <laughs> yeah. um, right, where do you go for cheap eats? Is it a restaurant, a pub or a, a market space? Uh, my friend Max has a, a sandwich shop just down the road from where I live in North London um, that's been there uh, probably about 10 years now. What's it called? Uh, Max's Sandwich Shop. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, and then tell us something that's always in your fridge. Uh, dill pickles. Always in your fridge? Always, yeah, homemade as well. Uh, at home? Yeah, yeah, just just keep a jar in the fridge. I love that. Yeah. Is that for a late night cookery snack? Yeah, like snacks. Just eating them whole sometimes. Okay, biggest cooking disaster. Uh, phew, that's a tough one. <laughs> I'd like to say there's not many to choose from, but yeah, I'd be lying. Um, I think the the worst one was probably uh, when I was a commie chef back back in Yorkshire. Uh, me and my friend Mark had uh, two covers for lunch, one table or two. And uh, the head chef and owner was actually out front running the floor for some reason. And uh, he comes into the kitchen and said, oh, this, this table want mashed potato. I'm like, oh, right, okay. Don't have mashed potato because it's not on the menu. He's like, obviously, I've said it's fine. I'm like, all oh, right, okay. So Mark says, oh, Rob, make some mashed potatoes. So I just, you know, peel a couple of potatoes, chop them up, put them in a pan, handful of salt, boil them up while they're having their starters, you know, mash them, pass it through a tammy, bit of butter, bit of cream, give it to Mark to try. He's like, nearly spits it out. He's like, how much salt did you put in that? I was like, oh, I don't know, chef. So anyway, I just kind of panicked, thrown a handful of salt in it. You know, bearing in mind, commie chef didn't, you know, early on in my career. Yeah. And um, yeah, had to go through the whole process again because, you know, chef had promised this table, this it, one yeah. table we had. So did it all over again, uh, got it out, but they waited about an hour for their main course. And by the end of this two cover lunch, the pile of washing up in the kitchen was just uh, ridiculous. Unbelievable. Um, two people, you had to make mash for them twice. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell us a food that you've never tried that you'd like to. Um, until this week, I'd never tried <coughs> crickets, um, but someone brought me a bag of cricket mints the other day, uh, which is something, you know, maybe we'll all be eating it in the future, but I will not be eating it again anytime soon. Absolutely no chance. What the hell is cricket mints? Mince made out of crickets, apparently. My first question was, do you shell them before you mince them? Which um, the chap scoffed at and said, of course not. You can't shell a cricket. So they just, yeah. It, I mean, it's made to look like beef mince and, and, and 
yeah, you cook it as you and would be. And it tasted when... like... Yeah, well, the, the thing for me was there was sort of little bits of um, ground-up shell in there, and I ate it before I was um, going to an event and just had some cricket shell stuck in the back of my throat for, for a couple of hours afterwards. Yeah, I've got to be honest, I've eaten crickets. It's not, it's, it's not the best. It's not the best. No. And what's your guilty pleasure? Definitely not crickets. No. <laughs> Again, very long list. Uh, I'd say my go-to uh, basic bit of white bread, um, basic ham, brown sauce sandwich, ham and brown sauce sandwich. Sounds delicious, that, with a dill pickle from the fridge. <laughs> On a special occasion, yeah. maybe, yeah. Uh, listen, mate, last question. Thanks so much for coming in. But what makes you optimistic for the future? Uh, I think... Uh, the biggest thing for me at the moment is we we opened the pub in in July, and the response we've had from not only people within the industry but also our our customer base has been amazing. As we all know, it's it's difficult times for everyone, but to have opened a business four months ago and and see it you know lively, vibrant, and and full of people wanting to eat out and wanting to enjoy themselves after the last few years is is really encouraging. Yeah, amazing. And listen, the pub is exceptional. I love it very much. And, you know, you're a credit to the industry and, and, and everything that you represent. And, you know, long live the British pub. And it feels like it's in safe hands in yours, mate. Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. And I can't wait to hear your recipe for the ribeye steak. Guys, thanks for listening. And don't forget to listen to the bonus cook-along recipe. For more details, see bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcast. See you next time. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, everyone. Cheers, Tom. Cheers, Tom.